We are the men who. Part of the initial conversation I'm having with somebody is about finding out about their model of the world. What is their reality like? So that I can use the language which is helpful to them. Um, so I generally ask what kind of work somebody does because that'll give me an indication as to what kind of words they're hearing on a day-to-day -day basis. But it's really important for me as a therapist to find out what their life is like and how they think so that I can help merge suggestions to them that will help them move on and grow and you know, find those invisible rungs on the ladder that's actually there in front of them that they perhaps can't see when they're in that pit of depression or that deep, dark place. Because there are rungs there and just simple little steps by step can bring somebody out. So but the aim of the work that I do is after every single time we meet that they walk out feeling better than when they walked in, at least they have hope. They'll certainly have a, um, a relaxation technique that can help them calm down and, and get perspective and context and understanding of where they're at and their, where they are on their journey. Welcome to The Men Who Talk, the men's mental well-being podcast brought to you by The Men Who. The Men Who is a men's collective for actively maintaining positive mental well-being. With The Men Who, men have the opportunity to talk, listen, support, care for, and help themselves and each other build meaningful connections in person, online, and together. We've been running men's talking circles in Edinburgh and beyond since 2019, but here we're bringing the conversation to you, exploring and sharing our experiences relating to men's mental well-being. Each episode you'll hear from our trustees, members, inspirational guests, and people we've met on our journey so far on how they're learning to actively manage their minds. Together, it's our purpose to raise the power of sharing what's on our mind and make it easier for men everywhere to access their well-being potential. Join us on this lifelong journey. We are the men who, and welcome to the men who talk. Hello and welcome to the men who talk podcast. This is Joe here. I just want to say I'm extremely grateful that of all the audio experiences you could have had in this moment, in this lifetime, that you've chosen this one. I'm excited today to introduce to you Tom Lawrence, who works as a counsellor for the Joshua Nolan Foundation, one of our partners in the mental health world in Edinburgh. He's a human given trained therapist and philosopher, an all-round brilliant wizard. And the reason I say wizard is because our conversation in this podcast ranges from the needs we all have as humans, um, art, how art happens, how it can seem to move through us in moments when we're really still and really quiet. But then we also go into some topics that are more esoteric and mystical. And now this is something that I really love doing, which is playing with ideas. So we have a particular way of thinking about who and what we are, but that way of thinking about ourselves is built up by our conditioning, by our culture, by our environments, for example, being a man is different everywhere in the world. So what I like to do with people like Tom who have a more mystical expanded view of the self is I like to probe where they're coming from, where their ideas have drawn from and what we might learn about ourselves through this window of a different way of thinking of who we are. So I encourage you to keep an open mind for this conversation and to follow myself and Tom as we meander through what it means to be human in the 21st century.
Tom, and welcome to the Men Who Talk podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Joe. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm honoured. I've yeah, heard well, of the Joe Rogan experience. I wanted to have the Joe Anderson experience. Yeah, it's much better, I promise. Um, <laughs> Good. Maybe Good. not quite so many listeners, but we're, we're getting there, hopefully. On the um, so, yeah, it's, it's great to speak to you, Tom, because I feel, um, well, we met at a panel about men's mental health at the University of Edinburgh uh, maybe a couple of months ago. And I just felt that the way that you framed uh, a lot of the kind of needs we have as humans and the way you talked about uh, well-being just resonated a lot with my approach with the men who approach so I just kind of wanted to get you on the podcast to give your wisdom and to talk a little bit about kind of who you are and your background um, and I've actually spoken to your colleague Malcolm uh, recently from Human Givens and I've become mm. quite interested in this idea um, or this kind of particular orientation towards therapy and I'm wondering mm. if you could maybe start by talking a little bit about your work as a therapist and kind of the direction that you come from. Mm. Sure, absolutely. Um, so as Malcolm perhaps would have, would have said as well, we're trained in the Human Givens Institute way um, approach to psychotherapy and counselling. And the great thing about it is that whoever comes for help, they can be helped because there's, a, there's an understanding that the brain that we have is endeavouring to get our needs met, physical and emotional. And we're much more, I think, generally speaking, um, open to the idea or know the idea that the brain is getting our physical needs met because if we feel cold, that's the brain saying, you know, put a jersey on. Um, if we're feeling hungry, that's the brain saying, you know, time to eat and same with thirst and, and sleep, time to rest. Um, the emotional needs, which we all have, um, are what underpins and provides foundation for our therapy. Um, and these emotional needs are roughly around about nine or 10. I think all, all brain behavioral therapy scientists can, can kind of agree on these as being the ones that underpin our needs. And um, I think first and foremost, um, we need to feel secure. We need to feel secure at home. We need to feel secure at school or in the office or our workplace, wherever. Because if we're not, then we're in a, a state of fight or flight, more or less, which is not a an ideal state to be in for any great length of time. And obviously, if you're in a risky um, job, then that, that goes with it. But you do need the downtime in between to feel safe again and allow the brain to process. Um, we need to feel emotionally connected to at least one human being, if possible. A dog would be perhaps a, a second best, certainly better than a fish anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody who accepts us, as, as the old expression is, what's at all, um, where we can be ourselves. We don't have to put on a pretense. We don't have to hide. Uh, and you know, if we have a problem, they, they might listen. Um, we also need to feel a sense of control in our life, uh, control and autonomy. Um, so, for instance, if somebody's at work and they're hard to do a job, and they've got a boss who's forever on their case and, and micromanaging them, um, that can be a, an enormous cause of frustration. And because you need the job to pay the rent, pay the mortgage, you can't turn around and tell the, the boss to f off. So you you get kind of a build up of frustration. Um, which can cause us, um, I wouldn't necessarily go into it, but can cause us to uh, have a sleep imbalance, um, which then can mean that we can wake up the following day feeling low in motivation, which can then start asking questions of ourselves about our focus and concentration, and it can lead to depression. Um, so, yeah, control and autonomy. We need to feel we're in charge of our life, more or less. Uh, we need to feel a sense of uh, community um, that we feel connected to more than just something uh, close to us, like a family, uh, whether it be a football team, a club, 
um, uh, political party, um, uh, what do they call congregations? What are they called? Obviously, I turn, <laughs> I've, obviously I turn up every week. <laughs> um, we need to feel a sense of achievement, uh, uh, which enables us to feel like we're expanding and growing and that builds self-esteem and confidence. Um, so it's really important to feel encouraged by people who, um, like, you know, for parents to encourage children, for instance. And that can be something that um, a lot of people I see haven't had as a, as a child. Um, for fear of turning the child into an, a big ego or something like that. Um, we need to feel uh, a sense of, um, or need to be able to give and receive attention. Uh, it's like a, a nutrition for the heart. Um, if we're unseen uh, and we can't interact with fellow human beings and we can feel a certain stress, which is why um, solitary confinement is such a, such a serious and difficult thing to endure. Not that I've ever had experience of it yet anyway. <laughs> um, we need to have a, a sense of status in the world, uh, whatever that may be, however high or low. Um, it's about how we're perceived by others, mm. whether it be a chairman of a company or um, it's also about our, our uh, contribution to society. If, if you're known as the man who fixes computers in the village, then that confers a sense of status and recognition. It's the kind of the recognition that, um, that we enjoy and it, and it helps. And I think we, we men are particularly sensitive to that. In fact, I think the greatest cause of depression is said to, to be from research um, in men. Uh, a loss of status, a loss of respect. So uh, being made redundant, being overlooked for promotion seems to hit us hard. Because um, we have a sense, I think, us men of at least not appearing weak. Um, we need to project a sense of strength and togetherness. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I sometimes put it like this, that the stags in the highlands uh, come September, October, if one's got a dodgy hip, he doesn't go around to the other stags and say, look, you know, can we put the rutting off till, uh, till tomorrow? I've got a bit of a, a bit of pain in the hip. They'll go, sorry, mate, you're, you're out of here. <laughs> mm. um, and I think, you know, we forget uh, as, um, I think we forget as humans that we do actually exist in animal bodies. We, you know, we bleed like an animal. Um, and so those motivational instincts are still in us. And I think those are, uh, are quite relevant for us men in that regard. It's interesting um, to think, you know, that, there's there's two things going on there there's that animal nature and then there's the story element of what we have constructed to be masculinity or or a male mm. status role and so mm. we have both that underwriting body that we're in that's sending certain signals towards us but then we've also got maybe a powerful cultural story that's been handed down um by men yeah. especially in you know this country who have been raised by men who went to war so that yeah. there's yeah. these kind of difficult narratives that maybe even picked up throughout yeah. the, those times yeah. And I think we find it very difficult to, you know, our ego is kind of predicated around that, isn't it? So we find it very difficult to, to be humble, uh, I think, sometimes. Um, and I, I, I was reading a book last year, and it really resonated with me that the humble man has nothing to fear because he's got nothing to let go of. Mm. He's completely free. He doesn't own anything inside so, himself. Yeah. So he can be free. Yeah. Well, I hmm. thought that was a, a wonderful, yeah, a wonderful indication of, frankly, what I'd like to be. <laughs> and what are some of the practices or or ways of being that are cultivating that for you that non-attachment <laughs> well i'm laughing because as my wife reminds me one of those things is when you're when you're driving and somebody cuts you up you wave him in 
after you, sir, is what you say. Because, <laughs> of course, the ego is, uh, from its origins, which is animalistic, uh, is about putting ourselves first in order that our genetic line procreates. So it's not about letting others go in front. It's, no, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm front of the queue here. You can wait. So um, letting go of that, that sense of ego, having to be first or in front, um, a, a helpful way of doing it is, yeah, come on in. You cut me up in traffic. That's absolutely fine. No problem. Yes. Okay, so it's like um, reframing the voice yeah. or, or changing the tone of the voice with which you interact with something that might trigger a kind of deeper instinct to want to, to yeah. win over. Or, or yeah. Something. Anything that kind of takes us out of our habitual responses. I mean, I mean a really difficult one, but a, but a really powerful one is to, in, in certain couples, is to not have the last word. Because there's that impetus in us. I told you so. Kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and if we can just pull back from that, then that need in us to, to be at the front, be right all the time, um, can help reduce that, that impetus in us and, and it will lead to great humility. Mm-hmm. If that's something that people are into. But, um, Indeed. Yeah. To me, humility is about letting go. And it's about letting go of, for me, the things that are in the way of me really enjoying my life. Because mm. I enjoy well, my life when I'm in joy, when I'm in peace, when I'm in a sense of freedom, uh, and I'm not angry, I'm not jealous, I'm not emotional, you know, like that. Mm. Well, that's one of the things that's so difficult to recognize when you're caught in a mm. mind spiral, as I call them, these, these mm. loops that generate both negative narratives, but also physiological experiences and emotional experiences. Like, what are the ways that you can interrupt that in a way that won't? Um, trigger you further and will hopefully promote a more relaxed attitude because it, it, it is only yourself you're hurting by getting caught in those things isn't it hmm. yeah uh, but if you're angry then you're going to be hurting people around you just at least by the, the force of your anger but hopefully not by acting it out physically hmm. but it's it's interesting um we do get this emotional hijack don't we and um it depends hmm. on uh, what the brain is connected to from our past or the meaning that our past meaning that we made of a situation um, that will determine the strength of trance of emotion that we're in. Um, we have this resource in us that we, I mean, a lot of people don't even know that's there, but it's uh, what in psychology terms we call the observing self. And if I've got a client, for instance, who comes to me um, for, for anger, let's say they want to produce or get rid of their anger. One of the things I ask them to do is uh, whenever they feel the anger at the first point they feel it, that's the time to act. Because most people kind of get that, oh, it's coming. Um, and because anger can be quite addictive, they'll stick with it and, and explode. Because it does give us a sense of power. It's, you know, I mean, going back to this animalistic thing, it's, it's you know, when a, like a gorilla stands on its, you know, on, on its hind legs or its back legs. Uh, to, to, look itself, to make itself look bigger and therefore more threatening. Um, so at that point when we're aware that the anger is rising, if we can have the presence of mind to scale it out of 10, so whatever you're feeling, if you then scale it, you have to go into a part of yourself that is not the anger to then have a view on the anger to give it a, a scale between 0 and 10, let's say. And as soon as you've done that, you're in your observing self, that observing intelligence that we are, that can perceive thought, that can perceive emotion, and obviously can see and feel that we have a body. And at that moment, you're out of the emotion, and then you can go straight into, I mean, like a breathing technique, mm-hmm. to really bring those arousal levels down, that adrenaline in the bloodstream down, 
mm-hmm. so that you can then get clarity and focus. And if it's in a relationship situation, I'd suggest to clients that they say to their partner, having told them they're going to do this, I'm just going to step outside and calm myself down and then I'll be back in to solve this problem with you, my darling. <laughs> <laughs> so remove um, yourself from the situation. Well, if it helps to calm down, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you, you mentioned... <clears throat> Like this sounds a lot like the witness in meditation, this idea of accessing mm. the kind of witness within yourself who is not experiencing the thing that you are finding overwhelming in that moment. Um, and you mentioned that, that that is what we are. Do you believe that that's a kind of deeper version of ourselves or, or a deeper access point into who we are, a more authentic version of ourselves? Yes, I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, who was it? I can't remember his name. Uh, identified these four levels of self and there's the physical there's the emotional there's the mental and then there's observing self and um i named the one to four and it's the the body is four the emotions is three and the, and the mental is two that is what i call the human and the the number one the observing self is what i call the being that we are and um yeah it is that witnessing observing intelligence that place of being that we are which is i mean some people say um, is the soul in us that is having the human journey. Hmm, what, what do you mean by that? Can you explain that a bit? Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> Just an easy, um, easy question there. <laughs> well, no, it's... <laughs> How weird do you want to go? Um, as weird as you like, Tom. As weird as I like, okay. Strap in. So uh, <laughs> most, a lot of the world's population have not been brought up in a Christian way and have an idea of, of recurrence or what, what it's often referred to as reincarnation. And um, I remember reading a book called Journey of Souls by Dr. Michael Newton. And I was, I was really uh, taken by it because, as he says at the beginning of the book, that he was, a, he was an American psychologist, um, very much a scientific view. There's only one life. Do your best, get on with it, and that's it. And what he found was that he had two or three clients that after two or three years of working with him, he couldn't move them on with the normal psychotherapeutic CBT kind of techniques uh, that he was using. So he um, dusted down his hypnotherapy book and started leading them through deep therapeutic uh, trances, experiences. Well, they had experiences. And what they started telling him, he realized, was information that they had no, no, indica- um, no connection to their current life. He checked it out with them afterwards. I mean, in essence, the book is, a, is about 95% edited transcripts of conversations with, I think, about 26 clients. And he, even though he was sceptical, he was a good scientist in so much that he thought, right, I'll, I'll research this and see what comes out. And one of, I think, the, one of the first clients that this happened with went into what we call as past life regressionist therapist, because I trained in this afterwards, um, what goes into a death scene. So the soul, if you like, sees the body getting further and further away as they, in this case, ascend, and it often isn't some kind of rising up. Um, and then they go on to a dimension which is, um, which is described in this book, Journey of Souls. And the way it's described, and we have to understand that the dimension in which that, uh, that client is reporting from or reporting of is not encompassed by normal language. 
we will do our best because it's coming through a brain. What they're seeing is coming through a brain, so they'll, you know, they'll describe it as best they can with, with language. And so what you end up with is a, depending on how old or young the soul is, if they're a relatively young soul, they'll be met by a spirit guide, as, as they called it, or he termed it. They then get reunited with their spirit group, a soul group, sorry. Um, and then there's a period of what seems like um, assimilation of the life led. What lessons did I learn? And then they talk about this, um, this kind of need to, to come back down to earth, to re reincarnate and have, have more experiences, more learning experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and they talk about being taken to an area, which for us would be a bit like going to a cinema and being shown snapshots of two or three potential lives. So you, Joe, could have been uh, in a life as a concert pianist in, in uh, New York, mm -hmm. but you chose to be as you are now. You could have been an Aboriginal in, in um, going through hard times in Australia, but you chose to be where you are now for the reasons of learning that you were going to get from this lifetime. Mm -hmm. For what little I know of you, that's about being of service to particularly men and that you want to help. So there was something in that getting a group of people around you together to form a... Um, the men who, at least, and other things that you do that I don't know about, to be of service, and um, you chose that. So that's that's what I mean about um, whatever it was I started out saying at the beginning, which I've now forgotten. <laughs> well, well, I I'm interested. I'm interested in this idea of um, both the choosing. First of all, what? If, so if we are choosing, what is it that's choosing? Is it this coherent? soul that belongs to us that travels through many lives over time or is it more like a Jungian kind of collective unconscious that we all slide up into at death re-merge with this kind of understanding that we're all gathering as we're moving forward as conscious beings um, or is it more that there's this I, I often wonder here in this particular point am I like a karmic kind of shooting star am I am I am I alone in this journey or is Joe the one that's alone and it's the, the soul that merges with everything else at death that isn't alone? Um, well, um, <clears throat> I can't say I've got all the answers, but let me say how I, how I make it up in my own mind, how it is for me, is that um, it's difficult to say. So there's this this thing called consciousness which to me is a substrate out of which everything comes i think there's a higher level of intelligence behind that even well, i'm told i understand and it seems to make sense to me um and in the field of consciousness everything is possible for me the soul that is in this body um is of a um of an intelligence that has the ability to leave a body and go on somewhere else and then of its own volition and go on through the process and, and reincarnate or go into another body um to have it have experiences that are relevant to it yeah. i mean I, th it, I think it's uh, although in a way it's quite simple it's also quite complicated because there is also the karma that an individual generates in a lifetime and also the karma they pick up from previous existences and also the karma of the that has been left by all the people that have gone before, all the souls that have gone, gone through lives before. Mm -hmm. you know, there's an ancient expression, uh, something along the lines of the sins of the father shall fall upon the generations thrice yet to come, which sounds pretty biblical. It probably was. But... Sounds biblical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the point being that, um, you know, if you build a nuclear power station, some poor sod's got to 
right. do something with a with a with a with a waste material. Yeah, and, for ten thousand um, years. Or yeah, I mean, yeah. how well was that thought through? Mm. Well, it's not on my watch, so who cares? Might have been the, the response to that, probably. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I think we're just we're just sort of circling around this 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 other conception of self, maybe should we call it that. Um, is I would say slightly different than the one that's often um, conceptualized within the field of mental health, where people yeah, are yeah, kind yeah. of brains and minds, and they yeah. require um, kind of tuning up and reconfiguring in order to to function correctly. Yeah. And I wonder whether this more esoteric, more mystical interpretation of the self has a role to play in the therapeutic process, in the kind of becoming a full human and being well. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree. <clears throat> um, I think the, th the therapeutic self that you're referring to is, is much more associated with uh, what's called ego. Um, and, th and I think there's quite a bit of, there's a, well, my understanding of the ego is that it's a, th I'm just about to go off road again. Is that all right? Fair enough. Um, it's a throwback to origins of life on Earth. It's our, our um, evolution inheritance, if you like. When life began on the planet, it had to be imbued with a, um, an impetus to gain energy from external sources and bring it in. That's, we do that through consuming food and water. Plants do it through consuming um, sunlight, as well as drawing up nutrients and water from the soil. And that mechanism had to be put into all living things in order for them to survive and thrive and grow and, and become life on, on earth. Um, and in the, in the human animal, it manifests in many a myriad different ways that we call part of ourselves, certainly, and certainly we'll recognize the ego. And it's that thing that I was speaking about earlier, for instance, in order for my genetic line to have preference in my mind, I have to be imbued with the desire to be first to things. So, I need to get food, I need to get water. And um, an imbalance of this is where I don't stop eating or I don't stop drinking alcohol, I don't stop drinking drugs. It's the mechanism of the ego that's about acquisition. If I have more of, like if I have more firewood, I'm more likely to survive the winter. If I have more food and storage, mm -hmm. I'm more likely to survive. So it's a, it is very much about survival. But Interesting. In our world, it, it manifests as, you know, how many boats do you need? How many houses do you need? I mean, how much money do you actually need? It's, you know, there's there's no off button in some people, and that's that's their business. Um, but do you think that that reflects potentially a not enoughness inside, which is something we we spoke about briefly, which is like the need for more reflects a sense a sense that there's not a, a enough going on inside. There's not there's you're not bringing enough to the table. Well, I think it comes from a perception of not having a need met, because mm -hmm. I think uh, part of the ego's mechanism is about getting our, our needs met. Mm -hmm. Or it could be wholly about getting our needs met, but um, because we have, above all animals, the reflective self-intelligence, and they don't, uh, it can be more thwarted and uh, lead in different, different ways. But certainly, um, if we have a perception that we're not safe, then we will, the ego will motivate us to enable us to feel safe. And that can mean, even though I've got £5 million in the bank, I still need more because in and of itself, the ego is just like programming. It doesn't have the ability to go, is this enough yet? That's mm -hmm. up to us. It just does what it does. It just creates the motivation to make us move forward, to get more of or not let go of what we have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's in, that's fascinating. You sort of put this 
to an animal level that, that this is something that emerges out of our evolutionary history. Um, but to me, it also sounds a lot, it reflects the economic system that we're currently living in as well. The, do you think that that is either an offshoot of the kind of biological instinct to have more, or is it something that's kind of, kind of developed on its own by accident? No, I think it comes from the original, yeah. Mm, so that's something to overcome in our nature, you think, mm. this, this economic system. Well, yeah, and I think there's, um, you know, that, uh, that uh, diagram of um, the evolution of man going from a, 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 a small ape to a bigger ape to, to basically an upright ape, Homo erectus, and then we become Homo sapiens. Well, the next phase in that evolution is Homo spiritus, mm. where we transcend the need to consume more, have more, where we, you know, we, we have a contentment inside where we share and we cooperate with each other and we you know, have a life and, a, and develop a world that is, to all intents and purposes, what we could call loving, mm. where we recognize every individual for who they are and for their unique gift. Um, and, um, yeah, that would be a, a world worth signing up for, wouldn't it? Do you think it's possible? Do you think that this is something real that can happen? I do. Uh, it's perhaps going to take a thousand years or so, but um... <laughs> oh, I was hoping maybe by the time I get to sixty, you know, that, that it might be. Well, maybe Joe, maybe. And the only <laughs> other way would be to wipe everybody else out and just start with a few selected friends that you know are, um, are on the path. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That sounds like dangerous logic, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Watching Marvel movies. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey everyone. We just want to say a huge thanks for tuning into this episode of The Men Who Talk and take a quick break from the conversation to remind you how you can access more information on our collective. Head to our website, www.themenwho.com, drop us an email at letstalkatthemenwho.com or check out our Instagram, at themenwho underscore, to see what we're up to. Together, it's our purpose to raise the power of sharing what's on our mind and make it easier for men everywhere to access their well-being potential. So why don't you join us on this lifelong journey? Thank you, and back to the show. I kind of feel like I want to talk a bit about your book because I, I've been really enjoying Smiling the Moon, and it's just this lovely, sweet tale mm. um, with a lot of depth to it, I think. And the characters in it, I think, are kind of going through this healing journey together. Um, but I wanted to ask you about uh, the character of, is it the Noser? Is that how you say it, Noseer? Lucia, yeah. Lucia, and, and it, from what I can pick up, he's kind of a druid, shaman kind of character. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely, yeah. And I guess I'm, I'm asking, like, is, are these people, is this someone based on someone historical, or is this based on people who are maybe still around, or are you actually a no-seer? Is that what the implication of the book is? is it, it would be is nice, that? wouldn't it? It would be nice. No, I, I couldn't claim that. I'll tell you what happened, Joe. I... Um, I just opened up what was the Pitlochry Acupuncture Centre. Mm. And um, as it was a relatively new, uh, new endeavour, I, I wasn't flush with, uh, with people to, to work with to help. So I had time on my hands and I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, maybe I could write a self-help book based on the kind of conversations I had with, uh, with clients and acupuncture patients. Because I was doing a lot of, well, actually only acupuncture at the time before I trained in um, human givens psychotherapy. And so, you know, I got the fingers working, sat down at the computer and start, right, what do I do? And these two characters came to mind. There's this man and he's walking this back, back, back path and he meets a boy and it just started coming out. Hmm. And um, 
it was fun. So I followed it. And, um, you know, here's more weirdness for you. Um, as if you talk to any seasoned writer, and you've probably experienced this yourself, the words just arrive. And it's like you're tuning into a wavelength. And that stream of consciousness is coming into you and you're writing away. It doesn't matter what you're writing, if you're writing a report or a book or, or um, CV or something in a way. But no, it's not, probably not quite so relevant. Um, <laughs> I wish you could get into flow with a CV. That I know, be- it would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Will they believe it? Mm. <laughs> um, and um, so that's what I went with. I slightly lost my thread now. Um, but those are the characters that came to mind. And uh, as several very seasoned and experienced mind and memory scientists have pointed out, there is no place that can be found where memory is stored in the brain. So the only way they can think that actually memory works is to interact with an energy field around us. Which some have called the Rayton field. Um, what's wow. his name? Benjamin Lippitt, I think, was one. And Sir John Eccles was another. Mm. And Joe Griffin and Ivan Tyrrell wrote a book called Godhead in which they referred to this as the Relaton field. So uh, when an artist or a writer or, or a musician says, I just heard the words or heard the, the sound in my head and just I brought it out. It's like you're on the end of a stream of consciousness and you're just bringing it into creation, bringing it into being. Mm. In essence, I, I don't want to, I mean, in essence, I think I was there when the book was written, but I can't completely claim to, if you know what I mean. I, I do know exactly yeah. what you mean. This is resonating with me a lot. I, I play guitar and write kind of songs through that. And I feel the same whenever anyone says, oh, that's a nice song. I, I don't really know where it came from. And I, I always feel that it happens in a moment where I merge with the guitar and I'm just the movement of mm. words and fingers and strings. And it just becomes an outpouring that doesn't really have a point necessarily. It's just what is moving through me in that moment. And it always does feel, and my partner and I, Sky, we often, she'll draw while I write, and often we'll catch the same wave of something moving through us at the same time. So it's wonderful, wonderful. not just coming from me, it's external to me and another person can also feel it. Hmm. Just such an interesting, it always, it always, there's a presence in the room when something like that is happening. Yeah, yeah. And can I ask, why did you say um, about the point, mention the point? Sorry? It's as if you said, kind of, I'm just playing it and, and there's, what's the point of it? Or there's no point to it. Well, just, you know, I think I grew up and I think a lot of people grew up thinking that to be creative and to, to, um, hmm. to engage in, in something, I think for me, it comes out in singing a lot, uh, this idea that I have to be good at it in order to express myself. And I think my attitude towards playing guitar is almost completely anti that because I just picked it up and then kept playing it and haven't stopped since. And it's like, it doesn't feel like it's got a point. It's just for its own sake, the, the melody, you know. And surely that is the point. Yes, yes. It's a teacher in that way, definitely. I think. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, the value of play for a child is the play. So that's its point. It's just the enjoyment. And if, if that was something we celebrated more, then mm. we wouldn't be so driven to have perhaps uh, measurable productivity all the time. What, what are your forms of finding play what how do you play <laughs> um well i'm very blessed i think in a similar way to you um in your life i uh, have a, a wonderful partner in life who we can just sit in a room and talk about nothing and start laughing <laughs> um and so I, that is i don't 
I don't have a piano anymore. I used to, I did play the piano, but I wouldn't say it was anything like your experience. You clearly have a talent for it. Um, I would one day like to pick up a guitar, but walking, uh, reading, I, uh, in, a, in a metaphorical way, I play with uh, the words that I use with, with clients. So we, we, you know, we play with metaphor and stories. Um, yeah, that's about it, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and I love the idea of, of therapy as a form of play between the client and the therapist. You're, you're playing in a universe in, in, in many ways. It must be, I guess it must be strange for you. Is there ways that you um, kind of enter into a client's reality through the therapy um, in a way? Or do you, do you have boundaries so that you don't kind of get too bound up with what's going on in their lives? Well, uh, it depends, of course, it depends on the situation um, and the individual. In terms of what the client might bring in terms of the, the terrible time they're having, um, metaphorically, I'm asking them to unpack it and put it on the floor in front of them and to then leave without picking it up again. But I, it's important for me not to, to then pick it up myself. Um, and part of the initial conversation I'm having with somebody is about finding out about their model of the world what is their reality like so that I can use the language which is helpful to them um, so I generally ask what kind of work somebody does because that'll give me an indication as to what kind of words they're hearing on a day-to-day -day basis so um, I mean also if they're male for instance I might be more inclined to use a football metaphor um, or a rugby metaphor, if that's a preference, or a golfing metaphor, again, if that's a preference. But it's really important for me as a therapist to find out what their life is like and how they think so that I can mm. help merge suggestions to them that will help them move on and grow and you know, find those invisible rungs on the ladder that's actually there in front of them that they perhaps can't see when they're in that pit of depression or that deep, dark place. Because mm. there are rungs there and just simple little steps by step can bring somebody out. So, but the aim of the work that I do is after every single time we meet that they walk out feeling better than when they walked in, at least they have hope. They'll certainly have a, um, a relaxation technique that can help them calm down and, and get perspective and context and understanding of where they're at and that, where they are on their journey. Mm, that's really interesting. And I, I like the way that you seem to combine many different tools. You know, you have these different um, practices and methods and uh, trainings to offer, which I think. Um, just in my experience of counseling it's, it's just amazing to have someone be sensitive to your needs rather than just be applying one method kind of hmm. um without being sensitive in that way i guess yeah um yeah. but i wonder if i could ask then because i came across this this quote from um the philosopher Baudrillard recently about um the idea that like where where are where are mental health conditions coming from are they just is mental health a new framing for a universal suffering that we've always had um or is it that something about the current setup of our culture our society uh, is causing a rise in mental health rates and and kind of borderlard says that we're living in an age where we have more and more information but less and less meaning and i wonder whether is is there something about meaning being lost here in this in in the way that mental health conditions are being created in this culture mm. I think you're right. I think it is a, um, it is a, a, a different label or a labeling for the same, different labeling for the same thing. I, of course, I don't remember consciously living in other times to compare it directly, but um, it seems to me that when we are so 
frequently and easily stimulated. I mean, just, um, you know, just a phone it, where it once was something that was pinned to a wall or on a table and we picked it up when it rang and said hello and, and there was a conversation and we wrote letters. Um, because our ego has, a, has a, a need for stimulation or like stimulation or encourages stimulation, if it's provided, we just, in a way, can't stop ourselves. Um, and I think with all the t- proliferation of TV channels and streaming channels and radio channels and podcasts and books and emails, and, and I mean, that's not to mention all the online stuff that I don't know so much about, but Facebook and Instagram and all those things. I mean, it's just, it can be constant. And, and uh, I'm always slightly surprised because I'm not in that bracket, but apparently your average Brit is on the, on the phone about four or five hours a day or something. So that must mean that somebody's almost on it 24 hours because I'm only on it, I don't know, half an hour at best or an hour or something. Um, and I think with all that kind of stimulation, because it, it releases uh, or stimulates the release of dopamine in the brain and, the, and, and it's therefore the brain is, is, or our response to that is that this is a good thing. It is therefore somehow to enhance our survival. I mean, so, I mean, the simple thing, for instance, of, of keeping in contact with the news, if we're informed, then from a making ourselves safe and secure the better information we have the more we can negotiate our way through life so i mean simple things like looking at the weather if we know it's going to be pouring with rain as soon as we step outside wear a coat and your vertical be safer but i think there's just so much going on that keeps us in a kind of top layer of thinking that we don't get the i can drop down and and connect with different parts of ourselves our creativity for instance or certainly our, our wisdom that we've that we carry with us that's that's in there that we can connect to because mm-hmm. um, it'll be i would imagine everybody's experience listening to this they've heard something wise come out of their mouth often or possibly in a, in a really difficult situation and they might have thought oh, was, hmm, that was pretty good i like that <laughs> but that wisdom is there in us all the time but um mm. you know as i understand it less and less uh churches are Churches aren't filled as much as they used to be. So that one hour a week, at least there was one hour of possible reflection mm. um, of quietness um, isn't there anymore. So there are those obviously who seek it in nature and, and, and what have you, obviously yeah. quietly meditation. But um, I think people are just so often kept top line all the time. They can't drop down and appreciate more space and mm-hmm. deeper aspects of themselves. That's interesting. Like it, so there's two things kind of going on there. There's like the increase in attention going towards um, a device or, or devices that are programmed along lines to hook your attention in ways that you don't really necessarily understand fully. Um, but then there's also the decline maybe be- either because of that or because of kind of other social cultural trends in kind of religiosity and people not um, attending faith-based communities as much as they used to and I did read a study once that suggested that attendance within any kind of faith-based community didn't matter which one was correlated with longer life and happiness just because mm. of the the kind of sense of purpose that that brings mm. to you, mm. both through the connection to something bigger but also to a group of like-minded people mm. um, so I wonder if that yeah that's there's definitely something in that but I you know you don't want to prescribe religion for people but how could people maybe forge their own connection with a sense of that something larger um, without having to go down a kind of denominational line necessarily. Well, I think the men who is, is, a, is, a, is a perfect example of that. You're gathering a, a group of people 
Um, and mentioning Carl Jung's collective consciousness, I mean, that, that would then become, if you like, alive in the room. But being there, not only for the purpose of helping yourself, but also being of service to those that also have attended that meeting, I think would, I think would generate that kind of situation you're speaking of. Mm. I, think it's a, I, it's a, I think it's a brilliant, um, I mean, I haven't, attended one of, one of the men who meetings, but um, I would imagine that would be a, because there's a, when you come together for the benefit of more than just yourself, that has a multiplying effect on the energy in the room. And I would imagine that everybody will at some level walk out feeling slightly raised up when, before they walked in. And That's to me, hope. yeah, yeah. I'm, well, I'm sure it's reality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it would be reality. Well, maybe you could you. do a, maybe you could do a survey afterwards and on a scale <laughs> out of 10 how did you feel inside of <laughs> yes because we have to make everything into metrics and oh gosh yes and it now. <laughs> yeah. how healed are you on a scale of one to ten <laughs> <laughs> did you get it did you receive it <laughs> yeah but i mean what, tell, tell me what's it what's it like in those in those meetings yeah it, there's what I really love is that there is this collective mind thing that happens. And because we are always focusing on a particular topic, we get to sort of anchor that collective mind on one um, focus for a while. And what's nice is that you see that as each person shares their perspective on it or their experiences of it, um, usually the next people that share will say, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but that's helped me to see you know, a bigger picture about the way that I see it. And, and I think it is just the um, recognition that there are many people going through similar things to you, but so uniquely embedded in their perspective, both their perceptual perspective, their emotional perspective, their uh, socialized perspective, like what you said about you know, their ego programming, how does their programming uh, interpret other people sharing on a topic? Um, and it kind of invites us all, I think, to let go of the need to state a point and more um, contribute towards the building of of a kind of um, diverse perspective on a topic, which Mm. I Mm. I really just, it it does, it does uplift you. And it's not about anyone being an expert or teaching anyone. It's just about the, each of us building on what the previous person has said in a way. Mm. Each person saying, this is what I see. Yeah. 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 Cause we just don't know, do we? The, the universe is so perspectival in the sense that you just can't see through anyone else's eyes. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know what's behind their eyes. So, there's no real way to, um, there's no reason and there's no logic to trying to imagine that you could put yourself in someone else's shoes other than through the emotions you feel as they're telling you how they're going through something, I think. Um, but it's, it's a good exercise in, in the boundary between self and other because you can become so kind of, um, the, the group creates a collective emotion that we all share in by the end, which is lovely. Um, yeah and exactly that can um that can be a shared experience that everybody will be touched and reached by mm-hmm. yeah and, and the I therapy would, would, room is the same yes that does yeah it does and I, I i think it's lovely that you you in essence you as i understood you correctly that when somebody is giving their perspective on something it's what they see and is not their opinion to me there's a that's a different thing mm-hmm. An opinion can be picked up in any market square in any pub in any newspaper and you can then deliver it and pretend it's your own but what you see you're um you know as i, as I tell folk 
time here in the my therapy room they're a unique view into the world and they have a view that nobody else will see they are well i mean there's been similar um collections of molecules if you like in the bodies but they're absolutely unique and so that perspective needs to be respected i think mm. yeah i think it's a wonderful yeah. thing well thank you so much tom this has been a really really lovely conversation i think that's a great place to end so is there anything else you'd like to say i know you have another book in the works is that coming soon coming soon (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we're all waiting bated breath (laughs) um i'm waiting too uh it's it's uh it's in the process it's in the process which isn't necessarily in the word processor itself so to speak Uh it's Mm -hmm. um i've got the ideas uh i've started writing and um yeah we'll we'll see but uh no, I would just like to thank you very much for having me on. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you a bit further than the first time you met. So uh, yeah. until the next time, thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tom. Speak to you soon. Okay. Cheerio. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Men Who Talk. We really hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did and can apply some of today's wisdom to your own mental well-being practices. For more information on this episode or our collective, head to the show notes or visit our website, www.themenwho.com or head over to Instagram, at themenwho underscore. If you've found value in what we've been sharing, feel free to rate and review our show as it really helps us spread the word and reach more listeners. For now, keep talking, stay well, and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Men Who Talk.